of the sons of Korah a song. On the holy mount stands the city he founded. The Lord loves the gates of Zion more than all the dwelling places of Jacob. Glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. Among those who know me, I mention Rahab and Babylon. Behold, Philistia and Tyre with Cush. This one was born there, they say. And of Zion it shall be said, this one and that one were born in her. For the Most High himself will establish her. The Lord records as he registers the peoples. This one was born there. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let's pray together this morning. Father, uh, we're mindful of the words of your son, our Lord Jesus, when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so, Lord, we come this morning and we confess our utter inability. We agree with what the Bible says about us. And so uh, we pray this morning for your favor. We pray this morning for your spirit to assist us, that we would be given eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, our desire is to know more of you. Our desire is to know more of the Lord Jesus. Our desire is to understand and to apply faithfully your word to our lives. And so, Father, we pray that for the glory of your great name, that would indeed be the case. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm very thankful for the tradition within the church that I grew up in. While I no longer hold to particular tenets of that tradition, I do recognize that those folks loved Jesus, they loved God's word, and they wanted to serve and honor the Lord. So even though I am no longer in that tradition, I remain grateful for the tradition in which I was raised. Now, that particular tradition, or at least the churches that we were in as I was growing up, always had a soft spot for the nation of Israel, and in particular for the city of Jerusalem. In fact, much of their understanding of the end times was centered upon Jerusalem, in particular on the Temple Mount. Now, to be clear, the kind of Baptistic Wesleyan tradition that I grew up in was not alone in thinking about Israel and Jerusalem in this way. Thanks to the influence of Billy Graham, scores of Bible-believing churches held a similar fascination with Israel and Jerusalem. Now, I want to be clear this morning about what I'm not saying. I know it's always dangerous. It's not quite as dangerous as it used to be, but it's, it's always dangerous to disagree with Dr. Graham. In fact, one time I just about got fired for disagreeing in a Southern Baptist church with Billy Graham. So please understand, I do so with great trepidation, and I do so respectfully. Now, if you've read Dr. Graham's uh, autobiography or if you've read the authorized biography, you know he he was, as in the words of Alistair Begg, uh, 
the best of men are men at best. Dr. Graham knew he was fallible. He was really good about admitting the places in which he was fallible. And he was really good in that sense. He was a model for us in admitting the places in which he was bamboozled. For example, uh, he wrote in his autobiography the sense of disappointment that he had when he realized that he was so wrong about Richard Nixon, it wasn't even funny. So I disagree with Dr. Graham, respectfully understanding that he himself knows he's not infallible. Here's the other thing I'm not saying. I'm not saying that from a political standpoint, the United States should not be concerned with what's going on in Israel or that we don't need an ally in the Middle East. I, yes, I understand all that. So please don't walk out of here saying, well, the preacher doesn't like Billy Graham and he doesn't like Israel. No, that is not what I'm saying. I want to be clear about that, right? You can have whatever political view you would like. We can have that conversation. There are those in this room who are far more qualified than I am to talk about that. That's not what I mean. What I mean is this. I mean that our text for this morning pushes back against an understanding of, of the geographical reality of Israel and Jerusalem as somehow being central to God's redemptive plan, particularly as it points to the end times. In fact, I want to argue this morning that we can't read Psalm 87 rightly and hold to a geographically centered view of Israel and Jerusalem. Zion is more than a place. It's more than just the geography. In fact, what I want to argue for is our big idea for this morning. Zion is the joyous community of God's redeemed people, both Jew and Gentile. Let me say that again. Zion is the joyous community of God's redeemed people, both Jew and Gentile. So three points we want to make this morning. The first one is this, the beloved city, question mark. The beloved city, question mark. This psalm opens with glowing and glorious language. In fact, the psalmist uses the word glorious. Verse 3, glorious things of you are spoken, O city of God. It would seem that Yahweh has a particular love for Zion. It would seem that God's affections are set in a particular way on this city of God. And yet, as we read verses 1 and 3, we understand that there are some notes here that make us a bit uneasy about understanding that to just be Jerusalem. To start with, in verse 1, we read, On the holy mount stands the city he founded. Okay, because strictly speaking, the Bible in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 6 to 10, tells us that David actually founded the city of Jerusalem. And David didn't even found it. Well, what happened was uh, he besieged it. It was known then as the city of Jebus. It was the home of the Jebusites. David laid siege to it. 
Uh, Joab, his commander, took some men through the aqueduct, got into the city, opened the gates, and then David defeated uh, the folks who were in the city of Jebus throughout the Jebusites, renamed it Jerusalem. It was then called the city of David. And then it became, as it were, the capital, both uh, politically and spiritually, of Israel. So when we read 2 Samuel 5 and then we read Psalm 87, we go, wait, is this the city that God founded? Because it seems like it was already founded and then David came and took it over. So is he just kind of speaking metaphorically? Is this just poetic language? But there's another issue with reading verses 1 to 3 about Jerusalem as a particular place. In the superscription, we're told that this is a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now, as we've been going through book 3 in the Psalms, particularly as we've been in this particular section of the Psalms, we've understood that the Psalms written by the sons of Korah are post-exilic. So in other words, this psalm was written after Jerusalem has been laid siege to, it's been destroyed, and God's people, or at least a portion of them, have been carried away into captivity in Babylon. So the gates of Jerusalem that are spoken of as the Lord loving the gates of Zion, well, those literal gates have been destroyed. They've been torn down. Jerusalem as a city has been razed to the ground. So much so that 70 years after the fact, Nehemiah away in Babylon gets a report about the state that the city of Jerusalem is in, and it causes him to weep. He goes into a funk. And the king says to him, hey, uh, what's up? Why is your countenance fallen? This can only be sadness of heart. And Nehemiah says, yeah, actually it is. And here's the deal. I've gotten a report about what Jerusalem looks like. And it's no longer this great city. It's now, it's now the home of foxes and birds. And it's, it's just, it's not what it once was. On top of that, in Ezekiel chapter 10, as Ezekiel is telling us all that happens in Jerusalem falling to the Babylonians, God takes um, Ezekiel and he shows him a vision. And he shows him in particular what's happening. And one of the things that we're told in Ezekiel chapter 10 is that the Spirit of God leaves the temple of God that's located in Jerusalem. Friends, there is a beloved city, but that beloved city cannot be the Jerusalem that is an actual physical location located in the current geopolitical reality that is Israel. Now, there is a place, but it's not here yet. Keep your finger in Psalm 87, but turn back with me to uh, our New Testament reading, what Meredith read for us out of Revelation chapter 21. In Revelation chapter 21, God's enemies have been defeated. Those who have rebelled against him have been judged. 
And in chapter 21 of Revelation, found on page 1250 in the Pew Bible, we read this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven, and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Friends, there is indeed a beloved city. There is a place in which the Lord loves those gates more than all the dwelling places. There is a place of which glorious things are spoken, but it's not Jerusalem as we know it now. It's not Jerusalem as David or Solomon knew it. No, it's the new Jerusalem. It's the one that is coming. There is a beloved city. It's just not here yet. Secondly, then, we need to focus on community, not geography. We need to focus on community, not geography. Well, we've already seen that this uh, this Jerusalem, this city of God of which glorious things are spoken, is not the Jerusalem that we would have thought. Rather, it's this Jerusalem that we're waiting for. And verse 4 through verse 6 just continues to affirm that. We know we're on the right track because shockingly, Psalm chapter uh, 87, verse four says this. Among those who know me, I mentioned Rahab and Babylon. Now, the Rahab that's being spoken of here is not Rahab, the prostitute who hid the spies in the book of Judges. Excuse me. uh, Yeah, in the book of Joshua. Rather, it's Rahab here shorthand for Egypt. We have Egypt. We have Babylon, we have Philistia, we have Tyre, and we have Cush. Why in the world, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does the psalmist use those places? Well, Egypt, let's remember, is the place in which God's people were enslaved. Babylon is the place that came against and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed Israel. Philistia, the Philistines, are ancient enemies of God's people. They could never quite get rid of them. Even David, as great a king as he was, even though he defeated Goliath, who was uh, a Philistine, the, the Philistines were sort of like old Samsonite luggage. They just they could never quite get rid of them. They were always hanging around. They were an ancient enemy. Tyre were the very prosperous neighbors of Israel. They were on the seacoast, and so they were seafaring and trading merchantmen. And in that sense, Tyre represents uh, the riches of the world that we know from reading the Bible have always been a snare to God's people and to godliness. Cush is in Africa. It's modern-day Ethiopia. Now, And by the way, if we were reading this this morning and Pastor Simon was with us from Kenya, he would get quite excited at the mention of Cush and with good reason. See, for a long time, our African brothers and sisters thought that Christianity was the white man's religion. And so when they come across a text that precedes the white men showing up, telling them about Christianity, and they see that they are mentioned in it, they get quite excited. 
Three times in verses 4 to 6, we're told that the ancient enemies of Israel, those who enslaved them, those who overthrew them, those who were their constant enemy, those who were a source of temptation, and those who represented the rest of the world, the Bible tells us three times they were born there. So these people who are just not only not of Israel, but they are the enemies or they are a temptation or they are completely other than Israel, we're told, no, in fact, they're actually residents of Israel. In fact, they are natural born residents of Zion. This one and that one were born in here. Why? For the Most High Himself is going to establish her. The Lord records as He registers to the peoples, this one was born there three times. See, the writer of Psalm 87 wants us to understand that this New Jerusalem, the city that is coming, is going to be inhabited not merely by Jews. It's going to be inhabited by both Jews and Gentiles. And that this community is not based upon ethnicity. This community is going to be based on those whom the Most High Himself will establish. This is not about your bloodline. No, this is about the work of God in the lives of establishing His people, a people for Himself. So if we're going to understand Psalm 87 rightly, and we're going to understand the city of God of which the psalmist is referring to, we can't think geography. We need instead to think about community. The community that God is establishing, community that includes even those who are ancient enemies of God's people. They are born there. Thirdly, then, in verse 7, there's this really interesting ending to this short psalm. Singers and dancers alike say, all my springs are in you. See, this new city, this new Jerusalem that is coming, is going to be a place of song. It's going to be a place of celebration. It's going to play, be a place in which uh, dancing will be a regular part of life together. Now, I know as conservative Bible-believing Christians, the thought of people dancing makes us a bit troubled. But nonetheless, that is true. It's going to be a place of great celebration. Again, in Revelation chapter 21, the passage that Meredith read for us. Listen to verses 3 and 4. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. Well, if that isn't reason enough to celebrate, there's more. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither there shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. 
Bob and I attended a funeral this week. If you're from here in Fremont and you pay attention to the news, you probably know what funeral it was. And I think you probably understand that it was a funeral that was filled with uh, mourning, crying, and pain. Most funerals are. But in particular, this one left, I think, everyone there with more questions than we had answers. So I think we understand how it is that this new Jerusalem is going to be a place of celebration. That it's going to be a place that's marked by joy. Not only is God with us, not only is he going to dwell with us and be with us as our God, but he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. There's going to be no more death, no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain, for the former things have passed away. I love the words of C.S. Lewis in the last battle when he says, everything sad is becoming untrue. Friends, that's why this is such a joyous city. That's why singers and dancers alike are saying, all my springs are in you. Water is life. And the springs that they desire, the springs that they need to be able to live, they're saying, listen, all of that is found in this new Jerusalem. All of that is found in the bride of Christ. We're not talking about a place. We're talking about a gathered community. Now, you and I both know that communities can gather for various and assorted reasons. One of the things that became uh, sort of uh, a fad within the church, and I think it did us a great harm, was missiologists bought into something called the homogeneous principle. The homogeneous principle basically means that like is attracted to like. And so if you want to grow your church, you want a church full of uh, really bright, attractive 20-somethings, then build it around that. And if you get enough bright, attractive 20-somethings, then all the other bright, attractive 20-somethings will want to come. Well, that's a gathering. You are creating a community, but that's not really the church. No, the church includes those who were once enemies of God and his people. The church is a place of great diversity. We saw that in Revelation chapter 7. There are people from every tongue and tribe and people and nation. See, what we're gathered around is not the fact that we're all the same. What we're gathered around is not the fact that we all have uh, the same kind of background or socioeconomic group, that we all have the same political convictions. 
No, what we are gathered around and what creates this joyous community is the finished and completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the basis of the community. That's the basis for this new Jerusalem. And so friends, this morning as we come to the table, we are reminded and we celebrate joyfully what it is that draws us together as God's people. It's not the fact that we all hold to the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's not the fact that we all voted a particular way. It's not the fact that we all have a particular or we share a particular ethnicity. No, what draws us together is the finished and completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the table this morning is both an invitation and a proclamation. We are reminded of who we are as God's people. We are a joyous community because the Lord Jesus Christ had his body broken and his blood shed to redeem us. And it is a reminder. It is a reminder that as certainly as the first advent of the Lord Jesus came about, so certainly will the second advent come about. You want to know how it is that we can stand here with certainty and say, yes, it's, and it sounds like a bad Doctor Who episode, doesn't it? There's this new city. It's going to come down out of heaven and it's going to be really cool. Well, friends, we know it's true because something even more improbable happened. God became man and he dwelt among us. He lived and then he was crucified and he was resurrected and God raised him and he is now ascended in heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The table reminds us and it declares to us that all that Psalm 87 announces to us and all that Revelation 21 announces to us is true. And so we come joyfully, understanding that your faith and my faith is not based on my ability to get it done or your ability to get it done or our faithfulness. No, our faith and the certainty of this city that is coming is based wholly and entirely on the finished and completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you call those who were once your enemies to be part of your family. Thank you that we who were once not a people are now called your people. Thank you that you reconcile enemies to yourself. And not only do you reconcile us, but you call us sons and daughters because of the Lord Jesus. So, Father, forgive us. Forgive us for uh, co-opting at times uh, political agendas or uh, sort of geopolitical agendas into Christianity and trying to get you to bless those usually ends poorly. And Father, thank you 
Thank you that through the Lord Jesus there is coming a day in which you will dwell with us and you will be our God and we will be your people and you will wipe every tear from our eyes because there will be no more death nor crying nor mourning. That Father, there is coming that day in which everything sad will become untrue. We pray now with the Apostle John. Amen. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. For we ask this in his name. Amen.